So, I'm going to be bringing the message today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. So let's open up to Acts 2. A title? Yeah, the title is, let me find it for you, Hallmarks of a Great Church. Hallmarks of a Great Church. Lord, I pray that you would give grace to us now as we open up your word. We, we ask that the Holy Spirit would shed light and instruction upon your truth and apply it to our hearts, apply it to our church. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they would be his witnesses. Well, that was fulfilled 10 days later on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they did become his witnesses. Peter represented the other 11 apostles and he stood up and he began to address the multitude of people that had uh, accumulated, they'd, they'd surrounded them because of the curiosity of the fact that all these people were speaking in different languages and people from various parts of the world could understand them in their own language and it drew a huge crowd. And so Peter stood up and began to preach to them and his central message was Jesus Christ. He preached that Christ was exalted and risen from the dead. And in fact, he preached that they had crucified their Messiah, who was also the one God had made their Lord. And at that, the people cried out and said, Brethren, what shall we do? In other words, they, they were afraid. They had crucified the one that God had sent to be their Savior, their Deliverer. And they said, What shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they did. A whole mass of people repented that day and were baptized. In fact it says that there are 3,000 of them that actually were converted and came into the church. Verse 41 says, So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then verse 42 down through the end of the chapter, <clears throat> verse 47, gives us a description of what it was like for this 3,120, because there was 120 before this mass conversion, so 3,120, <laughs> what church was like for them. And this is the, you know, we're going back to the very genesis, the very beginning of church life in the, the book of Acts. So let's read this description. They were continually de devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here we find 
a description of a spirit-filled church. I don't think there's any other explanation for what we read here other than that the Holy Spirit was mightily active in this big but young group of believers there in Jerusalem. And I think Christians have read this description for 2,000 years and they've said, this is wonderful what God did. This is like a model. Right, this is a model for a great church. And so what I wanted to do as I, as I came to this passage is take a look at the elements that were there in this original church in hopes that the Holy Spirit would produce the same kind of characteristics in our church. When I read this, I said, that's the kind of church I would like to be a part of. I would love to see these kinds of things going on at the bridge. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the obstacles that stands in the way, one of the marks of American Christianity is that we have an individualistic mindset. America was born on rugged individualism. You know, the pioneer, the person who is the self-made man, the guy going out there and doing it on his own. But you know, there's a lot of um, tribes or groups or nations in the world today that don't have the same mindset that we do here in America. They don't think along the lines of me, myself, and I, you know, the individual. They think about the community as being the important thing and commitment to that group. And it's because in order for some of these tribes or groups to survive, they had to learn to work as a group, as a union, like as a well-oiled machine. They had to work together to fight their enemies and to grow their crops and to hunt and whatever it was so that that group could continue to survive. The American Indians were like that. The group was everything. And I think the Bible calls us back more to that kind of a mindset than this individualistic mindset. The individualistic mindset says, what's in it for me? When we go church shopping, we think, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? And if it's not great enough, well then, forget it. I'll go on to the next church until I keep finding, until I keep looking and finally find the place that suits my needs and what I want. But that's an individualistic mindset. The Lord is calling us towards a, a real commitment to one another to be givers not just takers. To be, that's what it means to minister. It means to serve one another. And rather than being convenience oriented, like is it convenient for me to be a member of this church? Is it convenient to, to, be, to participate in this church? Uh, he's calling us to things like sacrifice, dedication, commitment, loyalty. Those are biblical characteristics of the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit, I think, did something really special here in this Acts 2 church. And as I was looking through it and meditating and reading, I, I found seven different characteristics that I'd like to look at with you. And the first one is the one we'll take the most time with this morning. It's devotion. Because verse 42 says that they were continually devoting themselves to one another. So continually devoting continually devoting. That phrase in the Greek means to continue to do something with intense effort. It means staying in a fixed direction. It means to give unremitting care to something. So just like a mother is devoted to her baby, 
She, she's paying attention to it continually, making sure the baby's needs are met, nurturing it. They said, here it says that they had this continual devotion, uh, and verse 42 says it was to four different things. Another word for continually devoted would be the word commitment. They were committed. This wasn't something that they did whenever it felt good, or it was convenient, or they just felt like it. This was something that was the warp and woof of their life, their lifestyle, was being involved as a church and as a family. When were they devoted, according to verse 42? Continually. That's the word. Continually, which means ongoing, like I said, a lifestyle, rather than one hour on a week on a Sunday morning. It wasn't like that. It was seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It was a whole way of life. That's what God is calling the church to, a way of life as brothers and sisters in the body. To what were they devoted? It's not what people are often devoted to today. Often today we're devoted to finding a great preacher that can hold our attention and that is interesting and that we can get lots of people to come to listen to. It's not an awesome worship band or this worship experience with lights and smoke and electric guitars and loud drums. <laughs> it's not having great programs for the kids. It's not having plenty of parking. It's not having a comfortable church building. There were four things that they were devoted to, and they were all intensely spiritual things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So first of all, the apostles' teaching. These early Christians, 3,000 of them, or 3,108, if you take away the apostles, they were devoted to continuing in the apostles' teaching. Now, what do you suppose the apostles taught them? Exactly. They had just spent three years following Christ. They saw Jesus do miracles. They heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. <clears throat> they had followed the Master for three and a half years, and they'd learned a lot from that. They heard all of the parables he told. I mean, their life was just totally enriched by following the Son of God. And now Jesus had died, risen, ascended to heaven, and their job now was to take everything Jesus had taught them and teach it to these new disciples. And so the wonderful thing is that these new Christians were devoted to learning what Jesus had taught the apostles. And the apostles were devoted to teaching what Jesus had taught them. So it was a great uh, mixture there. So how do we do that here at the bridge? How do we continually devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? That's what I was thinking about this week. Well, I think we need to think in two different aspects. First of all, those who teach the Word and those who are taught the Word. How do those who teach the Word continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? And I think what we do is that we are absolutely committed to bringing the Word of God to God's people. We're not free to get up here and speculate. We're not free to get up here and just throw our opinions out. We're not free to try to entertain you or make you laugh or be humorous or funny or tell jokes. Or, 
All of that may have its place, but our primary intent is to bring the things of eternity to you, to the people of God. To bring the Word of God in a way that God's people can, can read it, can understand it, and can apply it. It's really very simple. Our job is not to be creative or inventive or imaginative. Our job is to take what God has already said. God's already preached a whole bunch of sermons in this book. And our job is to take His sermons and, and explain them so that we, we see them and we understand them and we apply them. But what about people who are not teachers, not pastors? How would they be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching? I think it would mean that they would come eagerly, expectantly, to hear the Word of God. That they'd have a spiritual hunger. That, that they would be looking forward to hearing from God when we come on Sunday, or when someone is teaching the Word on a Tuesday night. There's a, there's a big difference between just showing up and coming because we want to be there, because we want to hear from God. There you go. So that's how we can be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. Eagerly coming to hear, wanting to hear from God, and those of us who teach the Word, really being serious about bringing God's Word to God's people. What else were they continually devoted to? What was the next one? I just had a question. Sure. Okay. Is that okay? Sure. So all of the people were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Would the apostles' teaching, could we also say that that's the word? Yeah, because today the apostles have put their teaching in Scripture. They've written okay. letters and books. So the Bible. Okay. So then with... Could we also say that um, in addition to coming and sitting under teaching, mm. could being devoted to the apostles' teaching, being in the Word ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. On a daily basis, you know, repeatedly. Amen. To memory, meditation. Absolutely. Very good. Okay. Yeah, that's another great way that we would apply that. So, do you ever want to hear Sister Debbie? <laughs> yes, Rob? Yeah. It's easier said than done. Yeah. Not yeah. So using the word of God to to edify each other. Yes. Definitely. And, and Yeah. Only the Christians could survive in the harsh land. Right. Uh, the atheists died within the first three months mm. because Christians shared and shared the word with each other and even shared the food. 
these winter storms, they were dead. Hmm. And I think that's why the United States is in trouble now because they're not united and they're letting too much of the secular world have its way. Yeah, we've become very secular mm -hmm. completely. Yep. Okay, what about the next one? Fellowship. Continually devoted to fellowship. That's a word that it's a little bit more vague in our minds, isn't it? Exactly what is fellowship? Well, the Greek words koinonia, that word literally means to share, to share with. So what were they sharing with each other? The next verse tells us they're sharing their possessions. Um, it says, verse 44, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So we think of fellowship as kind of having um, coffee and donuts after church and sitting around and talking about life. Well, that might be part of it, but that's, it's much broader than that. It's sharing our whole lives together with one another. It's sharing the things you know of Christ with each other and encouraging each other, like Brother Rob's just said. It's sharing your possessions with each other. I've known uh, believers to share, give cars away to people who had a need or uh, just, just give away refrigerators or whatever people needed in the body. That kind of spirit of just loving fellowship was taking place here in the early church. So fellowship is sharing. Whatever we have, we're like open books. We want to just share with one another whatever God has given to us. That seems, that seems really strange, doesn't it? To have a kind of church where we could really share to that level. But I think it's where the Lord would have the church to go. To go deeper than just a surface relationship. To have a real caring, loving, a deeper relationship where when there's needs in the body, hey, and I have something, the Lord tells me, okay, it's time to give that thing up. Remember that all of our possessions are His anyway. He just loans them to us for a time, and when He says give it up, that's His right, and then it's our right, it's our uh, command to obey the Lord. Um, what about the third one here, the breaking of bread? I understand that to be an expression that's talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. They were continually devoted not only to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, but to the Lord's Supper. Why would they be committed to the Lord's Supper? What do we do in the Lord's Supper that's important? Yeah? Yeah, we remember Christ. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And the apostles are teaching them about Jesus, but when they break the bread and drink the cup, they're actually remembering his sacrifice for them. They're remembering that they're only Christians because of what Jesus did. And they're giving God praise and thanks for sending his son to die for their sin. So we ought to be continually devoted to the Lord's Supper. And I'm really glad that we have adopted a practice of, of having the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Because the, even if the sermon is on something completely unrelated to the gospel, we always go back to the gospel because the Lord's Supper brings us there every single week. In fact, if we were to read verse 46, it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So the temple 
We find out from chapter 5 that that was Solomon's portico. It was a, this outdoor covered porch area where hundreds of Christians could assemble at, at one time. And this would probably be the place where the apostles could publicly preach and teach the disciples. They could, they could minister to larger groups of people. But then in addition to that, they were meeting in homes. And did you see what the time frequency was? Day by day. Day by day. It's like Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. It's like any, on any day of the week, you could find these Christians either meeting at the temple or meeting in homes. They were meeting all over the place. And as they did that, they broke bread. That's the same expression that we have in verse 42. And so the way I understand verse 46 is that he's talking about the Lord's Supper. They broke bread in homes. They shared, they remembered Christ in homes. And that sharing of Christ was linked to meals that they shared together. Just like we do in our home on Sunday. We have a meal, we share the Lord's Supper, they're linked together. Fellowship meal, we remember Christ. And then the last one. They were continually devoted to prayer. And this isn't talking about private prayer when you're alone. This is talking about the prayers of the church when they gather. Uh, the Greek says, the prayers. And so it's talking about when the believers come together, they were devoted to listening to the apostles teach, sharing together with whatever they had, observing the Lord's Supper and remembering Christ, and praying together as a body. And I think this is one of the areas where we need to grow in as a church. I'm really happy about the men's fellowship that meets on, on every other Thursday because we've started to pray together as men. And we're going through the book of James just praying over everything that we see in the text. And it's been helpful. But I, I think there should, there should be times where as a church we just come together for the purpose of prayer. And that's it. You know, it's not listen to a sermon or a Bible study or even to sing. We're there to pray and to seek God. And so maybe, maybe we can, as a church, think of how to do that. How to set aside certain times just for prayer. I'm just throwing it out there so we can begin thinking and talking about that. So that's the first one, devotion. It was a characteristic of this great church. Number two, awe. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Why? Why were they in awe? Well, it was because many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. They saw God's power in their midst. Uh, they, some of them were there when Peter healed the lame man at the gate beautiful at the temple. They saw that. Um, they knew that people were so in awe of the apostles' power that they tried to line up the sick so that Peter's shadow would fall on them. There was such power coming forth from the apostles in the early church. And, and so the people were in awe of what God was doing. They thought, how is this happening? The Lord is so evidently here and he's doing these mighty things. Not only that, but verse 47 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How did God add to their number? It says that the people were having favor. With, yeah, they were having favor with all the people around them, all the non-Christians. <laughs> so what that tells me is that these new Christians, they didn't immediately completely 
disassociate themselves in, in every respect with the world around them. They mixed with them, they talked with them, um, they had relationships with them, and God used that. God gave favor to these early Christians so that the, the people there actually listened to their testimony. When they talked about Jesus being the Messiah, they actually listened. God gave favor. And the Lord started to add to that 3,120. Every day it seemed like new people were coming into the church. So if that was happening at the bridge, I would be in awe too. <laughs> if, if the Lord was actually doing miraculous healings in our midst, boy, I would be in awe too. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a sense of awe about what God was doing in our midst? How he's changing lives. Now he's doing that. He is doing that. I, I see that in Brother Anthony. That's a changed life. Josie changed life. Um, I can look around and see Linda. And her life has been changed, you know, since we started to get to know Linda. God, God is doing that, but uh, I'd love to see more and more. So there was awe. A third characteristic is love. I get that from verse 44. It says, all those who had believed were together. Why don't we just stop right there. All those who had believed were together. They were together. Why? Because they had to? Because they had to check it off their to-do list every day? Oh yeah, I got to be together with the church. <laughs> because there was nowhere else they could be? No. It's because they wanted to be together. They, they loved each other. They wanted to hang out together. They, this was where God was. This was where things were happening. They wanted to be in the midst of the people of God. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was just so much togetherness happening within the body? And not just on Sunday morning or Tuesday night, but there's, there's phone calls, there's textings, there's people getting together maybe to shop together or to watch each other's kids or whatever. I mean, we're just togetherness because we want to be together. And it's hard, isn't it? Because we all have our families, we all have our jobs, we all have our responsibilities. But over and above all of that, I think we should be looking for ways that we can have more of an integrated lifestyle with the body. Some Christians go on vacations with other people in their church. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we can be creative. We can be thinking, okay, how can we be together more than just at stated meetings so that's really part of our lives? That's something for us to think through. Yeah. Um, I had something neat that kind of goes along with that. Um, we have, you know, we homeschool, but we have a teacher that comes in every 20 days to um, collect work samples and, you know, help me as, as the parent that's teaching, which is also very Christian and someone we love so much. And so we were sitting on the couch the other day and I was sharing a picture of how um, Jerome was standing and leading worship, and he had his kids with him, but he had my kids too. Hmm. And we were just, it's like, and I said, this is how we parent at our church, is together. And she goes, I want to show you something. So she pulls out her phone, and she's showing me this big group of people. It's her family and another family. She said, this is what you guys are going to look like in 18 years when your last babies are leaving the nest. You're going to go on this big family trip because that's what they did. They went on family trips together. And that she goes, this was my church family. And we did family trips and they went to funerals together. They, they watched people being born, marriages, and like all this they did together. 
and that's what reminded me what you just mm. said. It's like, uh, and she had said, "This is you guys." Praise God. Yeah. And just what you said, it kind of reflected on what Anthony said. Remember when he said, "We do this and that with each other, but we should spend more time with each other." Oh, yeah. So, yeah. 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 And I said, "Yeah, you know." And it's coincidence you bring it up. Yeah, we should. We're family. We love each other. Amen. What what kinds of things do families do together? My family does everything together. We do everything. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Oleg? They eat together, right? Families eat together. <laughs> and they work, right? Families work. They clean up the house. They do get their chores done together. <laughs> And sometimes they play together. They may go on a trip to the snow or go out to the park or whatever. So as, as a bigger family, an extended family, these are things that we should do together. It's not all about Sunday morning. It's about our lives, our lifestyle. Okay, number four, unity. Verse 46. Day by day continuing with one mind. That's the phrase I want you to think on. One mind. They didn't have... 3,120 minds, they had one mind, which means there was this unity of thought that they had together, a spiritual unity that God had done within their midst. And this, this begins actually in the first chapter of Acts, in verse, or chapter 1, verse 14, you have the 120 meeting in the upper room, and they're seeking God in prayer for 10 days straight. It says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So it starts even before Pentecost and it just keeps on continuing. Now that 3,000 are added, there's still one mind. All of them still have this one mind. And it's easy to see why, right? Because they're continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and to sharing and to remembering Christ in the Lord's Supper and to praying together. And they're seeing this work of God, this awesome work of God in their midst and there's this real love that they have for one another where they want to be together that's going to create unity can I say something? yeah um, families also can argue together hmm. yeah. and disagree with one another right? Yeah. and that's another thing that can create unity because if, if you want to have peace and we're to pursue peace with one another then you work towards resolution of that argument or disagreement or whatever, and um, and that that solidifies unity as well. Even if you, if if the person A still believes his position and person B still believes his position, they are still have agreed to disagree agreeably. Yeah. So they're they're unified and their love for one another, even if they're not unified in in sharing the same position. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I do. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do. And that is something that families do, right? There's always going to be problems that they have to resolve, and there's going to be problems in churches that we have to resolve. And that happens if you really love one another. Yeah. If you don't, then you just take the easy way out and go find a different church. Yeah, you just leave and find another church right. that you think you're going to share your doctrinal right. position with. Don't agree on stuff, but it's okay. We share that with each other. 
Yeah. You know, we've, we've done that with church family members already, where it's, we don't necessarily agree with your idea, but we listen to each other to hear each other's side out, and then, you know, and then we've moved on, and it's been fine, and, you know, and it's nice, that kind of, because in the world right now, if you don't agree with somebody, yep. you're automatically it's a bad insane. person. Yeah. You know, you don't want to yeah. do anything yeah. to yeah. you, but I love that God made us different. Yeah. I love that God gives us different point of views and understandings. Mm. Um, but not too many people in society right now have that same feeling. So when it comes to doctrine within the church, so we need to decide, okay, what, what's essential doctrine that we have to all agree on, yeah. right? That's and there are certain things that are like sticklers. Yeah. The deity of Christ, salvation by grace, the Trinity, um, things that are, yeah, the bodily resurrection of Christ. I think that brings us together, and that's important. Right. That we have the same feeling on that, because like what I'm talking about is like outside world stuff, like the, you know, politi the politics. Oh, politics, sure, stuff. sure. And those are, those are things that divide people. When it comes to what comes out of the Bible, that I think we should all be on the same page, 100%. Yeah. But when it comes to the outside world, it's okay that we don't agree. <laughs> but you know, even even biblical issues, we, there are going to be times when we disagree with each other. I mean, it's already happening and it will continue to happen. It's just going to be part of life. So how do we handle those kinds of issues in unity? We listen to each other. We, we ask each other to support our position from the Bible. And we examine and we're like good Bereans. We, we pour over the scriptures to see whether they have a better argument than we do. When we try to be honest and humble and open-minded that I don't know all things. If, if this person has a better argument than I, then I need to be willing to change my mind. And see, But that's, that's rare. It's, it's not easy to have those kind of and attitudes. It's and it's very hard. Really humble yourself. Especially yeah. when you have a, a strong feeling about something. Yes. Yeah. I, I try yeah. to win you over by love, not mm -hmm. by uh, I know more than you are. I'm higher than you are. Something like that. I, I'm learning just like you. I'm just trying to be sharp and like you. I'm trying to get one over on another. Yeah. When we go to heaven, there's no Gentile or Jew or woman or man trying to get one over on the other. Right. And that that's what we're trying to we're, we're trying to the same goal. We're all trying to head to the same direction. We're trying to reach that brass ring, as Paul would say. Yeah. Yeah, Linda? Will we even have these disagreements when we go to heaven? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, unless, unless we still don't know the truth when we get to heaven, but I think we will. Yeah, so. Yeah. There's another one I wanted to stipulate. You can uh, answer this one. Uh, is that uh, if you do ever fall in hard feelings, you are to forgive that brother or sister mm -hmm. and not to harbor those feelings. And then if it goes beyond that, they should sit down and counsel and be fair with one another and, and talk across the table. Yeah. But it's many places. Sometimes church does not handle that very well. 
uh, they let things fester and one gets their feelings. Absolutely. In fact, Jesus said you shouldn't even go and offer your sacrifice at the altar until you've talked and worked out that problem with the brother who has something against you. In other words, it's really important to get it resolved quickly. So I agree with you. Rather than just let a sore fester forever and just kind of pretend it doesn't exist, that's not the way the Lord wants us to deal with it. We need to go and confront it and try to resolve the issue in love. Yeah. It's, it's like in our marriages, it's the same thing. It's, it's not just one person, but it's two. And I remember that at one time, um, we had, Ray and I had been married uh, over a year, and that we came upon something we disagreed on. And so he, he came in and he, and he looked up at me and he said, What's wrong? And I said, we need to talk. And he looked at me a minute and he goes, No, right now you want to argue and I'm not going to argue with you. And he says, I'll come back when you're calmed down. <laughs> and he turned around and walked away. Now, when your spouse turns around your back on you and walks away, that's kind of a shock. But it was the first time we had disagreed on anything in our marriage. Eventually, he came back and wanted to know, are you ready to talk? And I said, yeah, I think we better talk now. So we said, he says, when we disagree on something, we will sit down at the table together. We'll, we'll pray to the Lord to you know, help us to resolve this matter. And he said, and then we'll each give our opinions. And our thought opinions are still against each other. He says, then we will agree to disagree and get up and forget about it. And that was probably the most remarkable thing that happened. And if we could do that with friends the mm. same way, and church members, you know, brothers and sisters in church, and come to a, an acceptable agreement on it. If you don't agree, agree to disagree, get up and still love each other and walk away. Yep. Amen. And if we, you could do that, then that's got to be the greatest way of, of getting anything solved. Because we may not either one really know the truth of the answer. Yeah. But one day God will know. And if it's important for us to know, He'll let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Psalm 133 one says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Yeah. So, behold how bad and how unpleasant it is for brethren to dwell together with bickering and fighting and division. Yeah. <laughs> It's so much better when we can just be in unity together yeah. and, uh, and accept each other, love each other. So, yeah. I think also a little self-sacrificing because to be able to be like, okay, we don't, dis we don't agree and walk away from that, you have to let go of that. And you have to accept that they are who they are. They have a difference of opinion. You still love them and you need to be able to walk away and you need to be self-sacrificing in that sense. Amen. Yeah, Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So that's, that's a word for the church. There it is. We are to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, I mean being diligent, 
together for the faith of the gospel. So just, just good, solid advice for us as a church. Let's work towards being one-minded, having one spirit. Okay, another characteristic here that we see is joy. Verse 46 says, going back to Acts 2, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness. That's the word that I was considering, gladness. To have gladness is to have joy. And so this early church, day by day, as they met together in houses and celebrated the Lord's Supper and prayed together, they had joy. They had gladness. I think gladness because they knew that Jesus was risen. Gladness because they saw the changed lives and other people around them. Gladness because the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was just joy in the Lord in their midst. And the mark of, one of the marks of a great church is there's going to be joy in the midst of that church. Number six, sincerity. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So, let's try to pinpoint the definition of sincerity. It means to be free from pretense or deceit. Proceeding from genuine feelings. It's the opposite of being hypocritical. To be sincere is opposite of being hypocritical. A hypocrite, is, uh, he's a person who puts a mask on and he tries to appear to be something that he's actually not. A sincere person is he doesn't have any deceit, he doesn't have any pretense, he's just himself. So these people were sincere. They were genuine. Uh, and it's easy to be insincere in church because we naturally want people to think well of us. Yes. And if we have these faults, which we do, <laughs> we're fallen, we don't want other people to know about it because we want them to think really good things about us. And so it's easy to try to cover up and wear a mask and just pretend that we've got it all together. But the early Christians were sincere, sincere hearts. No ulterior motives, sincere motives. And then the last one is praise. Verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. So this was a church that was filled with praise. Joy, love, sincerity, awe, devotion, Praise. I mean, you can tell you get that combination of things going for you in a church. Man, well, you've got a dynamic church, an awesome church. And, and whenever you find a great church, you're going to find great praise happening in that church. They're excited about God. They're excited about what the Lord has done and is doing presently in their lives. And great praise is happening when the people get together. Excitement in the Lord. So this morning, I want to do something a little bit different to apply what we have been considering. Um, I give Linda an envelope and she's going to pass out a sheet of paper with a pencil. And it's a series of questions based on what we've just read in Acts chapter 2. And what I'd like to do is for us together analyze our church on a scale of 1 to 10. How are we doing in these various areas so that we can know where we need to really give attention to in our church and also in our own individual lives. How are we doing in these areas?